0: Do you know somebody who won't wear their seatbelt? Well, if they won't listen to their car's dinging, maybe you should add some of your own.
1: Ding, 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 ding. Go ahead, ding, kids. Chime ding, in. Ding, ding, ding.
0: Hey, you, on the street, ding, tell this guy to wear a seatbelt. Ding ding, 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 ding. Yep, it's okay to speak up, because you know what? You could save their life. Learn more at buckleupva.com. A message from the Virginia Department of Motor Vehicles.
2: I'm Brian. At 58, doctors told me I had the heart of a 37-year-old man. They told me that after my heart transplant surgery. If you're a smoker, here are some tips in case that happens to you. First, you have to quit smoking before you can get on a list for a transplant. So quit now. And never feel sorry for yourself. I don't. I only feel sorry for that 37-year-old man.
0: Get the tools to help you quit at waytoquit.org.
2: I'm Brian. At 58, doctors told me I had the heart of a 37-year-old man. They told me that after my heart transplant surgery. If you're a smoker, here are some tips in case that happens to you. First, you have to quit smoking before you can get on a list for a transplant. So quit now. And never feel sorry for yourself. I don't. I only feel sorry for that 37-year-old man.
0: Get the tools to help you quit at waytoquit.org.
3: One of the most beloved people in Salt Lake City is Pamela Atkinson. She's the Angel of Salt Lake. Now, when you introduce her as the Angel of Salt Lake, she gets really embarrassed, which I loved doing right before we sat down for the interview. People said at the uh, at, uh, club at 50 West, the cafe, so who is this? I said, what's the Angel of Salt Lake? It's Pamela Atkinson. And uh, she, she gets very embarrassed by that, but it is true. Uh, Pamela Atkinson is one of the most revered people in this city for the work she does with homeless people, uh, with uh, uh, people who have drug and alcohol problems. But how did she get to be Pamela Atkinson? Where did she come from? You probably tell by her accent she's from England. But what sort of circumstances was Pamela Atkinson born into Born into, and where did she develop this love of helping others and being a good deed doer well we find out about all of that in this episode of the let's go eat show pamela j atkinson truly a treasure for salt lake city and an interesting woman with an interesting life we'll talk all about it as we eat well i ate french fries pamela had a salad and uh, we talked and talked and talked and after the interview was over we talked for another hour I was there with her for two hours uh, at the table. I want to thank everybody at the club at 50 West. Uh, the cafe there, uh, Jen, uh, gave us some of her red velvet cookies. They're delicious, as always. Uh, and uh, we had great food. Uh, please try it out. Come 50 West Broadway. Come and have a lunch or breakfast at the club at 50 West. Um, you'll, I think you'll be uh, happy with that. Uh, but for now, let's listen to Pamela Atkinson. Thanks to Dylan Allred for producing the show. And uh, here we go. Pamela Atkinson. Make sure that's rolling. Uh, it is my pleasure to welcome to this episode of the Let's Go Eat show, Pamela Atkinson. I, you know, uh, how, to, how to say who Pamela Atkinson is. Uh, the, w- we're here at the club at 50 West, and the, a, a young man helping us up at the counter there said, well, what are you doing here? Are you doing a show? And we said, yes. And he, I said, I'm interviewing this woman, Pamela Atkinson. And he said, well, who are you? <laughs> and I said, Pamela Atkinson is a community treasure. And uh, I don't. How do you respond to that when people? Because people call you that all the time.
4: Well, well, they do actually. And what I try to let people know, Bill, is that I actually feel like a very ordinary person who's been so blessed to work with so many great people that together we accomplish extraordinary things.
3: Um. I, I I want to get into how it is that you came to Utah and how you came to be a community activist because I mean that's really what you are. You are an activist in, um, in the community. More
4: of an, a community advocate, actually. You don't
3: like you don't care for the word activist. Is
4: activist that, sometimes um, has a
3: negative connotation. It has
4: it? a negative connotation. Although I know some people who call themselves activists and they're they're wonderful people, but. I, I'm more of an advocate, advocating for the increase in the services that are needed, increase in public policy, etc. And I would uh, call that advocating because I advocate up at the legislature. I'm not a lobbyist because I—I I, I mean, everything I do is uh, free. I'm—I'm a hundred percent volunteer, mm-hmm. and so it's more advocating with the various groups. Yes,
3: for the homeless. Uh, for the indigent?
4: The low income, yes.
3: Uh, and, you, uh, and you also mentioned to that young man uh, for refugees. Oh,
4: absolutely. Yeah. Yes. I've I, been I, involved with working with the refugees and the agencies that serve them and DWS for the state. And I can't tell you how much learning from refugees has enhanced my life. I. You, some years ago, France made a great mistake. They said all refugees had to be assimilated into the French culture. Mm-hmm. And, and that is... That that's is, the way
3: the French are with everything.
4: Well, that's <laughs> what it seemed like. And, of course, it backfired. If you ask people to assimilate, it just means that they have to forget their culture and just um, adopt yeah. the one they're mm-hmm. in. We say... We would like refugees to integrate, which means they learn about the Utah and the American culture, but at the same time, they help us learn about their culture too. And that's what we mean by integration. France
3: still struggles with that. They've had the, I mean, they just had uh, some, some silly law in some beachside French towns. Did you read about that? Yes, Where, I did. The and Burkini. I-
4: And I think that is absolutely ridiculous for the policemen, for policemen with guns, to have the lady start taking off the layers of clothing. So I was delighted to to hear on the radio driving here that it's on hold right now. So the bans will probably be rescinded.
3: I don't know. And the the French also had um, uh, made it, they said it was illegal for a woman to wear a veil or a... Uh, a a bur- a headscarf or something on a driver's license photo and I don't or an identification photo and I don't know if they've backed off on that they or not They
4: haven't backed off on that yet and you know I can understand both sides both from the religious perspective but also from the public safety uh, the some of the bombings have been mm-hmm. carried out by men dressed up as women with the veils mm-hmm. and and, and jihad so I I can understand the concerns being expressed.
3: This um this drive to uh, assimilate have them assimilate as really kind of what's backfired on them um mm-hmm. the, the um over the years and it's, they started this many years ago as you mentioned um, the they they now have populations large populations of muslim uh people uh particularly uh who who have never who who are who are resentful
1: mm-hmm.
3: they they live in france some of them born in france but they're resentful of the of french of french society because of that attempt to force them to assimilate
4: they are actually and i've seen some of the same kind of issues surface all over europe and uh, also in 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 the uk if you go to some of the big cities in the uk you can walk for quite a few miles, and you're surrounded uh, by, by Muslims. Mm-hmm. They have just proliferated in some of the cities in uh, the UK. And
3: that frightens people sometimes, doesn't it?
4: Oh, it, it, it really does. Um, if you fly into De Gaulle Airport in Paris, and then you get a train to um, the, the Gare du Nord, which is the mm-hmm. uh, big rail station... You go through miles and miles across town, and you you rarely see white people. It's mainly the uh, the Muslims who have taken over certain parts, and and unless you know people, it's like people say how afraid they are of homeless people. Yeah. If you know them, there's no need for fear. There was an incident just um, uh, a couple months ago, and the homeless man was so high on spice and he got really angry and he's here in salt lake yes here in salt lake and he went for me um he got as far as spitting at me and in just two seconds over half a dozen of my homeless friends just took him off Mm -hmm. Uh, they're very protective when they know you our situation right now is a little different there's a lot of people down here who are not homeless um, they're
3: just down there to co- capitalize on homelessness and
4: on the drugs yeah. and uh, it's it, 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 it is sad what's happening there but i I think when fear comes about whether it be with homeless or with refugees it it, it stops people being able to help in the way that that they would like to bill
3: Pamela Atkinson how how did you come to be this person uh, who who de- de- has devoted her life to service? Uh, you're you're from England. Uh, talk. Where did you where mm. did, Where were you born? How did you grow up? Um,
4: I grew up in Southeast London, and I actually grew up in the slums. Um, I can still remember it very distinctly the house. Uh, it didn't have an indoor toilet; it had an outdoor toilet, but no bath or shower. In a, in like a that. metropolitan, yes, city. Southeast yeah, southeast London, yes, yeah. and um, Forest Hill actually. And of course, that house and other houses are long gone. I remember the mice running around. I remember no heat. I remember using a lot of old coats for bedclothes just to keep warm. It was, it was real poverty. We didn't know where the next meal. Um, was coming from, but um, I don't let myself be defined by I, that I grew up in poverty. Mm-hmm. I let my life now be defined that I'm not living in poverty now, but. I look at all the people who helped me get where I am now. Well,
3: how did the, how did it come about that you were living in poverty? What was your I mean, what was your family circumstance? Is that um, may I ask that? Oh
4: yes, of course. Uh, my uh, father um, was a gambler, mm. and he uh, owned greyhound racing dogs. Really? <laughs> yes, and he bet a lot, and he lost everything, and then he took off and left my mother with uh, five kids. Mm. And that was very tough on her. And she didn't have a great deal of education. So there wasn't a lot of money coming in. Mm. And um, I think I was about 14 when I decided there has to be a way to get out of living in poverty. And I decided Mm. that I needed to apply myself at school and work even harder than I was. And I, I realized that education was the way out of poverty, and that's Wait, did what Did you have happened.
3: certain teachers and, and uh, uh, people like that who kind of encouraged you?
4: Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. There were certain teachers, and because the house was so cramped and small and noisy, um, I used to go to the library to study. And there was a librarian there who took an interest in me, encouraged me, and introduced me to different types of uh, literature too
3: and so you educated yourself you went to, did you go to un- university and?
4: Not, not not in England. I actually went to university college um, hospital for nursing, and it was interesting the class I was in that was accepted. There were about 500 applicants for 54 places. Mm -hmm. And I think I must have been the only one who came from a lower class. It was pretty obvious. People had the clothes, the money, Mm -hmm. the manners and and everything. I had to be a a quick, quick learner. But I loved nursing and I loved being able to care for people and in some instances help them get better. And I got a certain amount of satisfaction that some act that I had done for a patient made a difference. True. And I think that's where the beginning of my wanting to be involved and and making a difference um, started in in my nursing career. And then when I came over here, um,
3: what brought you over to the United States?
4: Uh, for, first of all, there was a hospital in uh, New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mount Sinai, and they had what... Very they, famous hospital. Yes, they mm. had what they called an exchange program, and they were short of nurses, and they brought over a whole group of um, nurses from England, and uh, I think the hardest thing for us was the, the way we'd been educated and trained. Uh, we did some of the stuff that only the doctors could do over here, mm. and so that was very, very hard, but we we, we quickly learned, and and so that was how I first uh, started. And and then um, I went back to England after that. And then I went to Australia. And I decided I'd like to shear sheep. I have no idea why.
3: Now, wait a minute.
4: I know. Isn't that odd? No. I went to the financial district in London and got a letter saying who I was and what mm. have you. They didn't have a clue, and so I went to Australia, and um, I could not get a job. Nobody was interested. You wanted in to that get a job shearing sheep, shearing sheep. sheep. Where, now, what, Pamela? Where did that come from? Uh, something I'd read, something I'd seen on television, and, and I, I have this very curious mind, and I want to know more about <laughs> things. But it didn't work out. But I was in the job service place, and I saw this advert. And it was for nurses on the Torres Strait Islands, and those are between um, New Guinea and Australia. I don't think
3: of the what islands?
4: Torres Strait, T-O-R-R-E-S. And most people haven't heard of yeah, them. Yeah,
3: I mean, I know yeah. a lot of stuff, but it's I It's at the
4: north of Queensland, and then mm-hmm. between there and New Guinea. Okay. And Captain Cook discovered them. Mm-hmm. So, eventually, back and forth, uh, I got accepted, and so... I, I flew up to there from Brisbane and then got a boat over and ended up on this island called Thursday Island. And I worked in this hospital and worked with Torres Strait Islanders who came in from different islands and then also with the aborigines that were brought up from North Queensland. And I quickly learned about the witch doctors who and the Puri Puri men who could point the finger or the bone and... Convince people they were going to die, and then we had to try to unconvince them. That was tough. How long did you do this? I did it for almost two years. And, and you loved
3: that, didn't you?
4: You, know, I really loved the islanders. I liked working in the hospital and in the operating room, but I loved going out to the different islands with the doctors. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually learned to water ski there, and it was in shark infested waters. And we had somebody watching out for the sharks. And so you had to stand up immediately. You didn't dare fall. You better
3: learn to water
4: ski. Oh, yes. And that Mm. was how I quickly learned. There was one island called York Island... And all the islanders were lighter-skinned than anybody else. And I discovered that there was a man, I think his first name was Adam, last name York, who came from America. Mm. And he had the time of his life I bet there. he did. And so <laughs> all of those islanders are, are lighter-skinned, but absolutely wonderful people. Mm. They taught me a lot about the joys of life and... Being carefree and what have you, and I
3: guess uh, probably they're they're fishing. Fish. They have they fish
1: and
4: oh, they they would fish, and at that time there were some um, uh, divers who would dive down to the bottom of the ocean and get the uh, poles, mm. bring them up mm-hmm. in the shells, mm. and uh,
3: so from there, where do you go?
4: And from there, I came back and I came to um, San Francisco.
0: Do you know somebody who won't wear their seatbelt? Well, if they won't listen to their car's dinging, maybe you should add some of your own.
1: Ding, 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 ding.
0: Go ahead, kids. Chime in. Ding, 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 Hey, you, on the street, tell this guy to wear a seatbelt. ding, ding, ding. ding, ding, Yep, it's okay to speak up, because you know what? You could save their life. Learn more at BuckleUpVA.com. A message from the Virginia Department of Motor Vehicles.
4: Go and mm-hmm. got a train to Pennsylvania. You like you?
3: I mean, you you. And this is all you do this by yourself. Yes, you know? you're all, a traveling person. You, you, I
4: had a travel bug, I think. Yeah, and and then I got this train to Pennsylvania. Left my luggage at the rail station and caught a bus to a Pennsylvania General Hospital, uh, Philadelphia General Hospital. I'd heard that they had a dorm, and I didn't have much money left at this point. Mm-hmm. And so um, I walked into the director of nursing office, and they hired me. And I got a bus back, got my luggage, and settled in the dorm and started work the next day as a nurse.
3: So you, uh, you've had uh, um, uh, this uh, career as a nurse has served you exceptionally
4: well. Oh, ab- absolutely. Yeah. And then I came out to California with a friend I'd met there. And um, I actually started to go to the University of California, get some uh, courses. I went to Salt Lake Community College first, then the Berkeley campus, and then I went to the Medical Center campus, and I I got a degree, a bachelor's degree. In nursing? In nursing. Mm -hmm. And then I went to graduate school at the University of Washington. I decided I was uh, on a roll. Yes. And actually, I did, I did rather well there mm-hmm. and loved the campus. And I um, got a—they uh, were very good. I, as I said, I have a very curious mind. So I got a minor in sociology, but I took classes in education. I took uh, classes in, in business and pathophysiology, and they let me sort of pull together. Um, and so I ended up with an M.A., and then went back to california and i taught nursing um, management and leadership and physiology for a while and then i got into hospital administration
3: oh really so you had a and you had a career doing that as well
4: uh, partly doing that partly uh, teaching and I, w- I had three children at this point and by the time Two of them were in college, but Intermountain Healthcare recruited me through a headhunter. Hmm. So I came to LDS Hospital in administration.
3: Now, you mind me asking, your husband have still married to no, him? No, you were, no. or that, at that time? Um,
4: we're, we're divorced. He he married somebody else, and that and that was fine. That was that. That right. was fine. All right, yes. enough said about that. And. I, I think for three months I was really bothered by it. And then I realized that if you're angry, it not only affects your life, but it affects the people you love and people with whom you work. And I was really quite fond of my in-laws, and I just did not want to lose touch with them. So I just got rid of my anger, and I'm still friends with my in-laws to, to this day. And uh, mm-hmm. I just made a, a different life for myself and eventually ended up at the um, company headquarters as their vice president for mission services.
3: That's here? Here at mm-hmm.
4: Mountain Healthcare. And that gave me the opportunity to help start clinics for the uninsured, um, school clinics like at Lincoln Elementary School where 80% of the kids were uninsured. But we collaborated and teamed up and they've continued expanding that role so it, it was great to be working with Intermountain Healthcare and be able to use their resources to expand our role out in the community.
3: What year did you come to Salt Lake City?
4: 1986.
3: And uh, have here remained? Yes. Do you uh, yes. You still travel though when you can?
4: I travel some, not quite as much. Uh, I travel out to California where my, my daughter and her family live, and Vancouver, Washington, <clears throat> where my son and his family live. Mm-hmm. But uh, my youngest daughter lives seven houses around the corner from me in Salt Lake. Oh, that's nice. With her six boys. Uh,
1: six? Yes. Oh, my. They're,
4: and and they the. Oh, they're just just tremendous uh, grandsons and and
3: all boys, isn't that all odd? boys? No.
4: And in some ways, that's easier to have all, all boys. I think so. Yes, mm-hmm. and so they're now twenty three, uh, down to twelve years of age. Hmm. Uh, so you
3: have you, you have this career here in Salt Lake City. Yes, and when and you and as as we've seen, uh, listening to you uh, talk about your career, you. Um, you always have had an interest in helping not just the patients who come into the hospital, but, I mean, mm-hmm. you start looking around at the community. You look at the islanders. You, uh, you, you in, um, And in Australia, yes. you did the same thing. It, you, you seem to have a, an interest and a, a desire to help people. Where does that come from? Do you know?
4: Well, I'm not sure, but I do know that... From a spiritual perspective, I, I think, you know, God has a plan for everyone, and I, if you want to give God a good laugh, tell him that you you know what your plans are for the future. <laughs> and I think, I think what happened for years, I just deviated and went my own way, but I, I suddenly realized that I was supposed to be involved in, in certain things, and... There are times when somebody may need help across the street and I'm looking and still walk into my car and I get what I call um, a holy nudge, which means I stop and cross the street to see if I can help. And sometimes if I'm very slow, Bill, I get what I call a holy shove <laughs> and, boy, do I move quickly. But it's, it's like I've discovered that I can help other people with just a small amount of caring or just a small amount of care, of giving, but at the same time i 'm making a difference in in my life, and I can walk away from an encounter with someone with that who might be able to help and I, feel, I just I just feel great that i 've had that opportunity, and it, it may be just a smile, it may be a hug maybe a word of encouragement, but I've discovered it. I can help people with a small amount of effort. I think the big projects we all get involved in, they're they're just great and they're very much needed. But I think that everybody can make a little bit of a difference in a very small way. Take this lady, for instance. She called me. She got my number from somebody and she was 85 years old. And she said, I want to help, but I'm on a limited income. Mm. But she said, I know you collect socks. What if I send you some money every other month? Could you buy a pair of socks? And that's what I did. And I made sure I sent her a note to say, here is who I gave your pair of socks to, this new pair of socks. And let her know that in her own small way, she'd really made a difference.
3: You, uh, I, I assume you retired from full time nursing.
4: Yes, I'm. I left um, into Mountain Healthcare. Yes, and I'm actually a hundred percent volunteer. Yeah. Um,
3: you. How long have you been doing that? Just, just, just pure volunteer work.
4: Well, I left into Mountain Healthcare in two two thousand and two, um, for. Thirteen years after that, one of the paid adventures I had, I was on the board of the BMW Bank of America, which is um, headquartered here. Mm -hmm. And so you get paid for the the meetings and uh, Mm -hmm. audit meetings, board meetings and what have you. And I put that into my mission fund. And that's what I've been able to use a great deal of to help people. Give to agencies, pay rent for people, buy groceries for people, and it's really, really made a difference. I'm off the board now, um, and, and I, miss, I miss that money, So with, but I have my social security, I have my pension, and I have savings, and I'm budgeting, and I'm quite frugal in many ways, but I'm budgeting so that I'm still able to, to give to people.
3: You, you're a, uh, so, so you're a one-woman social servants, service agency in a way.
4: Well, that, that does <coughs> sound a bit like it. But I must say, um, for instance, I've, I've just paid rent for a mother with four children. One of the children is autistic. They didn't belong in the shelter, an autistic child with all that stimuli, yeah. absolutely. And so they asked if I could help, but they did the screening. So that I, w- I will help. Um, Community Action Program, they help prevent homelessness by actually paying the rent of people. But they do incredible screening. So if somebody approaches me out in the street or they give me a call, I refer them to Community Action Program mm-hmm. because they're professionals at it. They're the experts at it. And if they do the screening and say, "If you would help, we'd really appreciate it," Pamela.
3: You, uh, I just wondered if you uh, accept donations from people so that you can then. Uh, you sort of did, like with the woman with the who, who you, oh, the, the yes. socks and that sort of yeah. thing. Is there is there a Pamela Atkinson? Uh, foundation of some sort that you, that people can contribute to.
4: There is a Pamela Atkinson Foundation with a with a board and um, the red meters that you see downtown saying right. put the coins in here. That goes to to that fund. And right now we've got uh, just over thirty thousand dollars, and the board will be meeting next month. And it goes to the agencies that that serve people. Mm-hmm. But the last board meeting, the board and I talked about how do we make it so that you can use that money when you're helping families and um, uh, other people and agencies. So rather than... Sending it all to the different agencies that serve our homeless friends. We're going to be having that kind of uh, discussion.
3: Uh, do you want to take a, another bite of your salad? Are you? Uh, you I'm fine. Thanks. Are you great fine? great salad, yeah. yes. Yes, they, ha- they do very good uh, salads here at uh, 50 West. So I guess uh, what I'd like to talk about now then is the, we, we've, I think we've sort of, we see the picture of this, the story of how it came to be that Pamela Atkinson was the, uh, was was the angel of Salt Lake? Um, I don't mean to embarrass right. you, but uh, I, I mean you have a, a building named after you, the Pamela J Atkinson Clinic. Oh, the um, yes, yeah, the,
4: yeah. the center, yes, yeah. for the clinic.
3: Yeah, uh, you and in there's not a social service agency in Salt Lake that doesn't know you, and um, and uh, probably call upon you for your. Thoughts and uh, your i, I guess it 's your expertise in this field you have a you, a certain amount of expertise in 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 the field of helping homeless people so let 's look at the the problems mm-hmm. that we have um, and it and this sounds odd perhaps but it's it 's not enough to just buy a, buy somebody some socks or right. Uh, you know, say here. Let me buy you a meal, or it's like these little these little spot band aids. And that, but there's this underlying, and I don't know what it is. But there's some gigantic underlying problem. Do
4: you have any kind of a handle on that? Do you know what this is? Well, first of all, I see myself as um, a team player. <clears throat> Excuse me, and I work with many of the agencies that serve our homeless friends. I learn a great deal from them, and hopefully they learn from me. If you look at the word team, T-E-A-M, it actually means together everyone achieves more. And I I don't think there's any room for ego when you're Mm -hmm. involved in service, but looking at what we can all do together, and the two initiatives we have now, Mayor Ben McAdams, Collective Impact. We've got so many people involved, and we're moving in the right direction. You think. Mm -hmm. And we've got Mayor Jackie Biskupski heading up the uh, site selection and initiative. We just had a commission meeting. These are all long-term goals. And
3: these are the plans to build the uh, shelters away away from the uh, Rio Grande district. Right,
4: yes, in different areas, Mm -hmm. and smaller shelters. But at the same time, some of us are also working on short-term and what I call immediate goals. If you look at what's happening down there, it is not fair on the businesses. It is unfair on the service providers. And You look at the drug dealers coming in, and, and many of those people down there, I have no idea who they are, but I do know they're not homeless as the colder weather moves in, the numbers down in that Rio Grande will lessen. There are a lot of people who come down because Salt Lake people are so generous. And some people go down there, hand out food, they hand out money, they hand out new clothing without knowing whether the person's homeless or not. Right. If you look at the panhandlers, Bill, almost 80% of them are not Homeless. The guys
3: and the gir- the women with signs. With the signs. Well, I talked to one of them, mm-hmm. uh, actually, uh, a while ago. Uh, he was very friendly yes. and very forthcoming. He was not homeless. Now, he was not, um, I mean, he was down on his luck, mm-hmm. but he did have a place to go, and he had money coming in from uh, government and so forth. He was pretty forthcoming about the whole thing. Yes, he, said, he was honest. Yeah, he said, this just, this is... He said, "The way I mean, he didn't have an easy life, but he said this is the money I collect here, and it just sort of supplements what I have, and it, it enables me to help out this girlfriend or what some woman he was living with. And I can help her out a little bit, and you know, so. He, but he wasn't homeless,
4: and and I I respect his honesty. Mm-hmm. Many of the panhandlers look the other way when they see me coming." <laughs> I've <laughs> tried giving them brochures where services are. And if, if somebody is, is homeless, uh, Bill, um, or near homeless rather, and they need help with rent or utilities, we do have resources available. But you see, you have to look at why do they need help? What, can they not budget? What other problems Maybe do they, they have? Maybe they have drug problems. If they have drug or alcohol problems and, that's what we're looking at needing right now mm. is new treatment centres. The ones that we have, uh, first step house, at a rescue, a Salt Lake Rescue Mission, they're doing an incredible job, but their waiting lists are, are huge. But we've got different different resources available. We have a team called Host, made up of police, um, it's homeless outreach uh, services team. And they'll talk to people who are panhandling and connect them with some of the resources that are available. Sometimes you'll see people who are panhandling and they say it's for food for their dogs. Well, if the police find them, the police will give me a call. Um, I, I give food to people who have dogs because for some of those people, the only love they get.
0: Do you know somebody who won't wear their seatbelt? Well, if they won't listen to their car's dinging, maybe you should add some of your own.
1: Ding, 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 ding.
0: Go ahead, kids. Chime in. Ding,
1: ding, ding.
0: Hey, you, on the street, tell this guy to wear a seatbelt. Ding, ding, ding. ding, Yep, it's okay to speak up. Because you know what? You could save their life. Learn more at buckleupva.com. A message from the Virginia Department of Motor Vehicles.
1: There's a highway
4: From their dogs. Um, I also have a vet who's terrific and gives me a 20% discount. Mm. And so I can refer uh, homeless people to to the vet, and um, he treats them and sends me the bill, but gives me a hefty discount.
3: He doesn't treat the homeless people. He treats their pets. He treats their (laughs) pets. You're quite right, yes. (laughs) Uh, uh, So uh, there are resources. Yes. How, How did we get into this? fix that we seem to be in right now do you have do you know um we went from being a city that was profiled uh on the daily show mm-hmm. that they, they you i'm sure you saw that terrific little report they did about right. getting people into homes and <clears throat> so forth and and we were kind of looked at as a model of, of how to deal with homelessness and all of a sudden things just went to bloody hell and, and now we have, it appears to be, to the, to the eye, more homeless people than ever in Salt Lake.
4: Right. How did that happen? Well, there, there's a distinction between homelessness and chronic homelessness. Mm-hmm. What we had done was to take thousands of people off the streets and get them into what we call permanent supportive housing. And this, by doing this, we were actually able to almost end chronic homelessness there were only 178 chronic homeless people left so we had all these places where people would get help with their addictions get case management many of them on social security so they pay 30 percent of that for rent but at the same time we were saying we've almost ended chronic homelessness we were Almost 14,000 people who didn't meet the criteria for home, for chronic homelessness and were not eligible for that federally supported program. 14,000? Almost 14,000 at that time. So some of us had raised that question, you know, we do need to turn quickly and before we could announce all of that, the media were descending upon us even the economists from from the uk mm-hmm. and so it did sound like we'd ended homelessness and of course we hadn't but then the the drug scene just proliferated and when you look at what's happening down in the rio grande there are people higher on spice and they're the ones who have the seizures and the acting out yeah. behavior. There are other people. I run in the, yeah.
3: to them in the parking lot over here oh, yes. all the time. They accost, they accost me in the parking lot here. You
4: know. I'm, I'm sure they do. Yeah. And these people aren't necessarily using uh, our shelters or the soup kitchen or any of the other right. resources. And um, it, it, it's, it is scary. And what's happening is the police intervene. And the people just mock the police because they know they can be taken in and booked. But there are no beds in the county. The beds are all full. So some of us are working on that angle in terms of how do we free up beds? Who's in the beds right now in the jails? So I'm going to be talking to Sheriff um, Jim Winder Mm -hmm. and others. And there's a concerted effort to say we've got to act immediately. We cannot... Just accept that behavior down there that is just so negative and so scary. It is,
3: and it, that that I I that scene behind the Rio Grande station itself yes. that has just pro, it, it just proliferated recently within the last few months, and it's very apparent when the weather is warm. There's a they, they've started putting. I, I noticed the other day that I, I kind of drive by there every once in a while just to just to look and go. Well, I this is a it's astonishing mm-hmm. and they they've now put out porta-potties all yes. along there and there are people camped there but are, you're seeing people camping in little fringe areas of the of the downtown now too up on uh, 6th south and about about 4th or about 5th or 6th east there's a little park there and there's a little and or the library square and there's a little yes. camp of homeless people back in the corner of library square and you know you just and again, some of those people are chronically homeless, and, but a lot of them are just people who are preying on those people.
4: A lot of them are people who have just decided to join the drugs scene.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, the drug dealers are different from the ones I used to see down there now, and these people are so well-organized. We've got the cartels. The, the drugs are coming up to mm-hmm. California. The trucks are coming over here to Utah. And there are different warehouses around where the drugs are stored. The dealers have access to it. And the money is, is flowing. And part of the danger is you know, some of the marijuana and some of the other stuff that's out there, it, it is, it's not diluted, it is enhanced. And so we're seeing some overdoses and that. Uh, You're
3: seeing more of that?
4: A little bit of it. And people are ending up in the hospital or or, mm. or dying. But so many, again, of those people, I, I don't see them at the soup kitchen. Right. I, I don't see them over at the Road Home Shelter or the rescue mission. They're coming in and they're spending all day and sometimes all night down there. They they know very well when the police come around And the police have increased, they've got uh, bike patrols, they've got foot patrols down there. But our biggest obstacle right now, Bill, is the lack of jail room. Mm. There's no room at the jails, Mm. any of the jails. Mm. So we've got to look at who's occupying all those beds in the county jails. Are they federal? Are they local? Who are they?
3: Yeah, maybe people that shouldn't be in, in our local jails. Yes. And, and you suspect there are many of those.
4: Um, I I don't have the data, but I suspect that there's a variety of of, of people there. I know that our county has contracts with different cities mm-hmm. and different um, uh, and the fed and the feds, different agencies. Yeah. So we just need to make sure that when the police see this kind of behavior down at the Rio Grande, when they arrest somebody, that person can go to jail. Mm-hmm. Not just be booked and released. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Uh, it's gotten more dangerous um, down there uh, since yes. you started working with that population. Uh, <clears throat> and you And you mentioned that a little bit early on. <clears throat> do you ever fear for your safety, and how do you deal with that?
4: I never used to fear. I used to be able to walk down Rio Grande, hi, everybody. And people say, hey, hey, Pamela. And I get hugs and handshakes and a group of us would chat. Now when I walk down there, I, there's a lot of people I don't know. I know if somebody goes for me, my homeless friends will protect me. But I am very careful, even more careful nowadays than, than I used to be. And um, I don't take any chances or risks because when people are high on drugs, their behavior is absolutely unpredictable. Mm -hmm. Um, It is sad to me that people who used to come out of the shelter and be on the streets and then go back into the shelter, even they're not feeling safe anymore, this criminal element... Has just grown, yeah. so much in the past year and a half. It so
3: it's almost like they can sort of hide in plain sight.
4: Absolutely, I mean, it's isn't that way. that's
3: that's sort of why they're there? Mm-hmm. Yes. They can sort of blend in with the mm-hmm. with the actual homeless population, and you know, you can't, you don't really know the difference unless you have a very schooled eye.
4: You're absolutely right because I I look at a a lot of the people. When I'm down serving at St. Vincent de Paul, I always take enough volunteers so um, I don't have to serve per se, but I can mingle and talk with a lot of my friends. And Sometimes it's sad when I realize that some of my friends I've been helping for ages and they haven't been able to make much progress, but there are others I never see now and i realized that they've got on with their lives mm. and they they took those steps out of homelessness but then there are these complete strangers that and so i'm trying to get to know them but uh, some of them just don't don't want to talk and they're, they're a little high on drugs and it because of the unpredictable behavior i'm not going to put myself at risk but my homeless friends will tell me who to avoid you and who's
3: a, not homeless. You have a pretty interesting um, uh, attitude about certain things about homelessness. I've heard you say over uh, the time, and um, when uh, when you're dealing with uh, uh, people who um, who are heavy drinkers, and in the winter time, I, 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 when I heard you tell this, and I'll let you tell people what you what you advise and what you tell people to do. I, I went,
1: oh yeah. well. Uh, Okay. <laughs> I,
4: I actually, um, if some of my homeless friends who want to camp out, don't want to go into the shelter, and who drink heavily, I actually teach them how to drink when it's really very cold. And I tell them they have to, you know, they have. To, once they've drunk half a bottle, they've got to be in their sleeping bag, and then before they drink the other half, they've got to zip it up and put the gloves and the hat and everything on, and only then can they finish on the rest of the bottle. Um,
3: because if they, sometimes they get drunk and they forget to get into the sleeping yeah, bag, and that's when they freeze to death.
4: They, we've had several men who have frozen to death over the years, and I can remember some of them. Um, and it's just it's just very sad. But you know you can get frozen fingers and, mm-hmm. and toes, and so we just help people to uh, to avoid that. Um, some people are so dependent on alcohol. I've helped friends, homeless friends, get into detox, and then um, if if they're smokers, I'll actually will buy them cigarettes just mm-hmm. to keep them in there sort of a bribe mm-hmm. the, the nicotine takes the place of the craving for alcohol a scientist told me and then sometimes two months later i'll see them out on the streets with a bottle and i'll say what what happened they say i'm celebrating pamela <laughs> and they're inebriated and mm. you know we we don't we don't give up on people because I have homeless friends who are off the streets now that I knew on the streets 10, 15, 16 years, and now they're in housing. And so the only people that I may not work with as much, Bill, are those people who feel entitled. You give. You give me. I deserve this. They, they, are,
3: they are there.
4: They're there. And, uh, I, you know, I wouldn't ever let them freeze to death, and I may supply some of the basic needs, but... But but I love to work with people who take advantage of being helped and really want to get on with their lives. Do
3: people, um, uh, do you do you think people? I'm, what? How do people, the alcoholics, who you give that advice to? Do they? Uh, how do they respond to that advice?
4: The, <laughs> Positively, many of them very positive. Some of them, you know, don't you tell me what to do? Um, but many of them say. Thank you for caring for me, and then they'll say, "I love you, Pamela," and then start start drinking and, and what have you but if they if they know that you care about them they, they really you know, care care about those who who are serving them do people ask you how you can care about those
3: kind of people yes how, ca- how can you how can you possibly care about those people wouldn't we be, be just better now I'm going to play the i 'm going to play the role of the, the, the you know the, the hard-hearted person, you know wouldn't yeah. we just be better off if they just died if they, why not just let them kill themselves? Mm-hmm.
4: Um, i'm one of those people who thinks that every human being matters, um, and I also think that in this life we 're all equal. nobody's better than anybody else. Nobody's inferior to anybody else or superior. I just think that in life uh, we have different roles to play. I mean you play a role I couldn't couldn't do. I play a different role other people play different roles It's when we come together and work together so homeless people um, who are my friends I trust them and they trust me uh, and I have great love for them because I see them as as human beings uh, I remember at the soup kitchen a couple of years ago I had some young people down there helping and one of them came up to me and said I I just saw you hug those two men and they hugged you and I said yes wasn't that great and she said but they're dirty and I said are they I'm sorry but I didn't didn't notice and we got to talk a, a little bit and what have you and She actually came down for a number of times before they moved away and started shaking hands and greeting people. I I think as I look at each homeless friend, I see something in them that says, please help me, and I say, I can help. I don't tell my homeless friends what they need. I ask them what they need. And many of them need toiletries. They want to be clean. <clears throat> many of them need um, underwear, T-shirts, socks, and, and what have you. Simple things. They're, they're really very simple things. But the biggest thing, the two big things that people need, one is to know that people care and the other is a roof over their heads. That's so important. And that's why we went to permanent supportive housing. For the chronically homeless, it's called housing first. We always used to do treatment first, then housing. Mm-hmm. But now it get them into housing with, with a roof over their heads. Um, but I, pe- what I've learned is when I give something to one of my homeless or low-income friends, it's not so much what I'm giving them. It's that somebody cared about them to give. So when people give me all these donations of, um, you know, Science Bank right now is in the midst of a huge sock drive. All of their branches can uh, participate. And when I hand out those socks to my homeless friends, sure, they're appreciative of the socks, but they're very appreciative of the fact that somebody cared enough to go out and buy those socks, give them to me to give to them. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure everybody realizes that.
3: Yeah. Uh, what role does uh, – you're a, a Presbyterian. Yes. And have been for your your entire life? No. No,
4: no I wasn't a churchgoer for many, many years. So, really? Um, no. Um, I did go to a Baptist church in, in – um, London a few times. Mm-hmm. I tried Episcopalian, but um, I, I like the Presbyterian Church. But, you know, there are times I play hooky from my church, and I go to Pastor France Davis's Calvary Baptist Church. You like that one? Oh, I love Pastor Davis. He's a,
3: he's a nice guy, and he's a, and, I, I, I have not heard him deliver a sermon, but I've heard him speak. He's pretty, pretty damn good.
4: Sitting there on a Sunday, um, I, and it's at that church I've learned how I can stand clap, sway and sing all at the same time <laughs> Who would have and, ever thought? <laughs> yes, who would have ever thought? And you go to the, that church and there's that warm feeling that envelops you and you 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 feel loved and welcomed there And I, and the sermons that Pastor Davis preaches, I never forget because he may reiterate something two or three times and you walk out of the church feeling that You've learned, you've worshipped, and you've been pastored. What? Uh, so what?
3: Uh, what role? Why did you uh, turn to? Uh, you say you didn't go to church. Uh, why did you? Yeah. Why did you uh, turn to church? And what role does religion play in everything that you do?
4: I I, I often had the feeling that there was a lot more to life, and um, and I tried different churches with mm-hmm. different friends. Um. And it wasn't just church. It was discovering God and what role Christ plays in my life. But I feel that if I'm looking at the dining room full of people, at the soup kitchen, and I feel great love for them. It's not Pamela's love. It's Christ's love flowing through me. I just honestly feel that we're all instruments of God and that we do what he would have us do and you have to distinguish I have to distinguish between what I do, what I feel the Lord wants me to do. And um, there is there is a difference. But I'm also very much aware if I don't do it I'll be disappointed in me. But the Lord will get somebody else to do it and <laughs> I it, <laughs> I can't do everything for everybody, but I can do something for somebody. And so I do listen very carefully. I think members of the LDS Church call it uh, promptings, something like that. Um, I call it the holy nudge or mm-hmm. occasionally the holy shove.
3: The still small voice. The people in the LDS Church will talk about the, the still yes. small voice.
4: Yes. It, it, I think it I remember that. that from Early religious Good for training. you. And I, yes, I, but I have heard them talk about promptings. And I think it's um, it's pretty much the same thing. But um, what, what I've learned is it's not always convenient to go and do what I'm meant to do. Yeah. But who, nobody ever said it would be. And sometimes when I have to change my plans because I feel I'm meant to do something and I do that something, I get such an immense satisfaction and uh, I have a group of friends we monitor each other for what we call emotional bankruptcy and that's comes about when you're giving 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 but you're not taking care of yourself so we get together and we sit around with potluck and tell funny stories and we just take care of of one another if I don't take care of me or allow my friends and family to take care of me, I'm not going to be able to reach out and take mm-hmm. care of other people.
3: And and uh, probably I would think that your, your belief in God and, and Christ, that's also a way of taking care of yourself.
4: Well, I think so because if I can have a quiet time at home and, and read the scriptures mm-hmm. or, or in church with just incredible sacred music then I've had a fill up. <laughs> it's like filling up your car. Mm-hmm. I have a fill up and, and it's, uh, it's, it's renewed energy. I'm amazed sometimes at the energy I have and I know it isn't just me. It comes from me. But if I can do a 14 or 15 hour a day here and there and go home and feel wow that was a great day, and I'm glad I was able to do what I did. And I may feel tired, but it's it, it's a good tiredness.
3: What uh, what? what uh, so people who think they want to help, or they mm-hmm. and they, but they sometimes people I think don't know what to do. They don't know. Well, how can I help? I'm just I can't do. Should, am I supposed to give money to the panhandlers? Am I I can't? Uh, Me? What should I do? How should I go volunteer somewhere? How do, you, how do you, can you, do you help people sometimes set them on a path to helping out a little bit?
4: Well, I, I do actually. I like to know what is it that people are interested in? What is it that makes them feel they're making a difference? <clears throat> but I often tell people to call 211. 211 is an information and referral center. So anybody who needs help with housing, rent, health what can call 2 one But there's also a volunteer center. And those volunteer centers know all of the nonprofits. They know what their needs are, what they need donated. They know what they need in terms of volunteers. And they can talk to people who call in and ask for the volunteer center. What is it you're interested in? Let's just talk a bit. Well, I feel so bad
3: about the children. Oh, children, eh? Well, then they can Mm -hmm. sort of set you on a path of of volunteer program to help children.
4: Oh, exactly. The the children at at Mm the uh, Road Home Mm -hmm. and in in a number of different non-profits and just helping a child read. You know, mentors in schools, one hour per week per child in six months' time that kid if he's had the same person coming in helping him read and tutoring him academic scores go up yeah self esteem scores go up social skills uh, increase it is it's like it's a great secret but a small amount of caring can cause a, a great deal of difference Just call 211 and yes. s- and say i want to volunteer I and they'll say, well, what are, you,
3: what are your interests? What do you want to mm-hmm. volunteer in?
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly.
4: Exactly. It, it's really very easy. And people can then say, today I really made a difference in somebody else's life. And in doing so, I made a difference in my own life. There are incredible number of people who volunteer and who give, whether it be 10 minutes a week whether it be four hours a week. Everybody's different. Everybody's unique. Everybody's got different skills. And we are incredibly fortunate, the caliber of people that we have here in Utah. Mm. And when we all join together, we're just making an incredible difference, Bill.
3: we on the right path here, Pamela. <clears throat> are things you think, the, the, the we mentioned early on in the interview, but the, the initiatives from mm-hmm. the county government uh, to build the new shelters along partnership with, I guess, Salt Lake City and, and some state support as well. We're on the right path there?
4: We're on the right path there, but there's much more we can do. We've got to do an awful lot more of preventing homelessness occurring in the first place, and we know how to do that. We've got to do a lot more to prevent our prisons being full mm-hmm. we're doing a lot in terms of preventing recidivism mm-hmm. and working with the teenagers but what about if we prevented it right from birth help the parents so that children grew up with a great self-esteem and felt loved from their parents and from others because people intervened right at that early age and they Kids don't feel the need to join gangs in the first place because they're feeling loved and supportive. Mm-hmm. So we need to intervene all along the way of the age continuum.
3: Is there anybody in this th- that you don't like?
4: Oh. <laughs> is,
3: is, is there anybody that you just think, oh, I can't stand that person?
4: I, I have to admit if there's somebody I'm having uh, problems with and maybe a little bit of that feeling I think what is positive about them Pamela so the next time I see them I might say oh my goodness your hair's so shiny love it and so
3: Pamela ever says to you your hair's so shiny (laughs) that means she was she was not so happy with you the last time you met
4: (laughs) hopefully not But, but my feeling is you know unless somebody is evil and I know there are such people but if, if there's somebody um, I, I don't feel positive about, I need to know why. And is it me? Have I offended them in some way? Mm-hmm. Or is there some, some different approach? It's interesting, um, isn't
3: it? I mean, really, oftentimes you can fix the negative feelings you have about someone mm-hmm. by just fixing yourself.
4: Absolutely. Not,
3: not, you're not going to change them, probably. So it's how, it's, wait a minute, you go, hey, it's how I'm responding. That's the real problem here.
4: You, you are, you're you more right than you know you are. Um, there was one child I was having problems relating to. I realized he wasn't going to change. He was four. <laughs> but why didn't I change? And so my approach to him became one laced with humor. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, you know, you need to do this right now. And it was, oh, okay, let's see. Mm-hmm. How can we do this together? And it, or, or just say something funny. Mm-hmm. Building up that same esteem and you get closer to the kid. And you're changing, but the kid is changing too and responding. And we sometimes work with people, adults and children and teenagers. We, we do not think maybe our approach is completely wrong. I have to tell you, when I spoke at Gunnison Prison some years ago, it was a graduation commencement. Mm -hmm. I was the keynote speaker, toughest speech I've ever written. At a prison. Because Mm -hmm. some of them were going to be in there for a long time. But after it was over, I asked the warden if I could go around and speak with the inmates in their suits, Mm -hmm. prison garb, jumpsuits. And he gave me permission. And I asked them as we were eating refreshments, what should and could have happened in your life to have kept you out of prison? Mm-hmm. And they articulated it in different ways, but the bottom line was this if only somebody had really cared about me. And when I talked to the fourteen to eight year olds, eighteen year olds who are in juvenile detention and we had got a discussion going I asked them the same question and they came up with the answer. People didn't care about us. And if somebody had really cared about me, I wouldn't be here today. And I think that's very telling because I think every human being has a need to be cared about. Try walking down Main Street or or State Street, smiling at everybody and say, Hi, how are you? Hope you have a good day. I know if people do that to me and I'm not at 100%, I immediately jump to 100%. Because somebody cared enough to greet me as a human being, uh,
3: I don't think we can say anything more. I think that's uh, that's a good place to to uh, end a discussion. Uh, if, if people want to help out with the Pamela J. Atkinson Foundation, mm-hmm. can they do that?
4: They can do that through any Zions Bank, and um, make Zions Bank uh, allows us to have the foundation through them at no cost.
3: So, if you'd like to. Just donate money. Just go into a Zions Bank and say, "I'd like to give some money to the Pamela J. Atkinson."
4: They can either say that the Pamela J. Atkinson Foundation or host the host. Yes, which is the Red Meter program, mm-hmm. and then I'll get an email saying a certain amount has been deposited. Mm. Yes.
3: What's the J stand for?
4: You know, it's, it's interesting. It is Joan. For the first 18 Pamela years Joan. of my life, I was Pamela Mary Collin. That was my maiden name. And um, when I needed a birth certificate for work and I went and I found there wasn't a Pamela Mary, but there was a Pamela Joan. And apparently my mother and father had had a row about it and she thought she'd won. But actually, uh, my he, dad had won. He,
3: so it's Joan.
4: It is Pamela Jones. Pamela yeah.
3: Jones. Did your did, was your mother around when you found that out and did you tell her?
4: Uh, yes and that was when I learned that they'd had a big uh, row about it. Yeah. And that was when she learned that he would won and she hadn't.
3: Was she was she angry?
4: She was really upset. I <laughs> felt I'd lost a bit of my identity. Yeah. It was it was really it was really weird yeah. but um,
3: You've learned to live with it.
4: Oh, I learned. <laughs> I learned a long time ago that it's one of the minor, minor scuffles of life.
3: My, name is, my first name is, really, is, is Ralph.
1: It's, really?
4: Yes. it's Ralph. My
3: middle name is William.
4: Yes.
1: And,
3: and my mother always called me Bill. And, and for a long time, if anyone ever called me Ralph, I, you know, like school records and things yes. like that, I was just oh, couldn't stand <laughs> it. I was so embarrassed. Really? I'm not a Ralph. That's not me.
1: <laughs> I'm not
3: Ralph. And and I'm, but I'll tell you, it's just a quick story about Ralph. I learned to live with the name Ralph when I went to a a graduate school. And my records said Ralph William Allred at the Mm -hmm. graduate school that I went to. And always in class as I'd grown up, I'd had to contend with the first day of class saying, my real, my my name is Bill. My name, my people call me Bill. And it was kind of always embarrassing to yes, do that, but that's right. who I was. I was Bill. Yes. When I went to graduate school, I just I didn't do that. They said Ralph Allred, and I went. That's me.
1: Interesting. And,
3: and I have a whole uh, a group of friends and acquaintances still to this day in various parts of the country who call me Ralph. Really? Yeah. They, they'll they'll say. Ralph how are they or the yes. I I go to New York and I'll run into one of them yes. or see them there. Ralph it's so nice to see you and I I'm Ralph Allred that's who I am
4: Wow so cause to me you're Bill yeah. Allred
3: Yeah well I'm both of those people I'm I'm Ralph Allred and and I'm Bill Allred yeah. so well, so we'll end on a story about me. Oh, I think that sounds great. Uh, Pamela Atkinson, Pamela Joan Atkinson, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for uh, what you do in the community. And I don't mean to embarrass you, but you are, well, a treasure.
4: Thank you very much, right. Bill.
3: Uh That's it. Uh, thanks to uh, Jen and the staff at 50 West. Uh, she brought by these cookies, by the way. If you'd like to take this home and eat it later, mm. Jen makes these special red velvet cookies. They're icing in the middle of them.
4: Oh, how generous. And
3: they're really, really good. Mm-hmm. So you thank can,
4: you. You can take that home yes. have that. Thank you.
3: Uh, uh, thank you to Dylan Allred for producing this show. Uh, I'm Bill Allred. Remember, next time you're pouring the drinks, it's kind of a my slogan is kind of, uh, you know, in lieu of alcoholism that we talked about. But the slogan and the sign off for the show is next time you're pouring the drinks, remember, always make mine a double.
0: Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the
2: At 58, doctors told me I had the heart of a 37-year-old man. They told me that after my heart transplant surgery. If you're a smoker, here are some tips in case that happens to you. First, you have to quit smoking before you can get on a list for a transplant. So quit now. And never feel sorry for yourself. I don't. I only feel sorry for that 37-year-old man. Get the
0: tools to help you quit at waytoquit.org.